You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Now, I don't know if you guys have noticed, uh, you might have uh, been watching my YouTube channel and picked up, actually I don't have a YouTube channel, <laughs> um, but uh, you might have noticed that um, as a 36-year-old man, I've just taken up skateboarding for the first time. Yeah. And uh, nothing bad can come of that, right? Um, I, I did have my first stack on Friday. It was a big one. Um, if you were down at the lake at the time, you would have seen me come flying down the ramp towards the lake move quickly to avoid hitting a dog and then collide with a little wall which sent me flying just, I don't know, hundreds of metres through the air. And um, I somehow managed to damage both the palms of my hands and the back of my hands. So it must have been one of those kinds of things which, um, and the worst thing was hitting my cheek on the pavement. I am physically incapable of bruising which is annoying because I would have a really good big bruise here um, if I had a normal physiological response. But it's, it's kind of a good thing because my, like, I've spent the last 10 years um, reading for a living and so the most I've got actually is, is paper cuts. Now I actually have real scars. So I'm kind of, I'm just showing them off a little bit for you. All right, if you want photos later, let me know. and put them on my YouTube channel. So... The reason I took up skateboarding as an old man is because my son loves his scooter. Um, and when he started out scooting about a year ago, it was okay because I could walk as fast as he would scoot along. Now he's a little demon on that thing. He's just, he's, he's, he's probably going to end up at, the, uh, at some kind of X Games, right, on his little scooter. He loves it. He's on it every day and he hoons around. So I thought I need to have some way of catching up keeping up with him and so I took up skateboarding he just got his first skateboard and so he's getting into that now and uh, it's a great thing but uh, scooting around Caroline Springs with him is a little bit unnerving as a father because I love him and I want him to, to be safe and we have this huge problem with hoons in Caroline Springs you might have seen the stories on a, on a current affair about hoons and the, the times that we go scooting around is kind of like the peak time for hoons out on the road. It's, um, it's around three o'clock in the afternoon. And um, when I first heard about hoons in Caroline Springs, I just figured they'd all be pea platters in like supercharged Commodores. They're not. They're all mums on the school run. They're all mums on the school run. I promise you. I've studied this for six years. I could write a doctorate about the hoon problem in Caroline Springs. They're all mums, they're all in big cars, and they're all going really fast. And my son is really small, and so if there were to be a coming together, it would be pretty nasty. And it's weird because I, got, like, I, I chat to these mums quite a lot. I, I, I get to spend some time down at the school down here that Indy goes to, and they're really lovely, generous, until they get into the car park. And then it's like the starting grid at the Bathurst 1000. It's like, just stay off the road between three and four. That's my advice to you this morning. 
And it's hard being the father of a kid and wanting to protect him, and, and, but also wanting to let him go and let him go ahead and, and get him to learn the rules of the road, all the while being under threat from mums. And, um, and, and it's hard. And, and you know what? I think God really understands that. God understands what it's like to be the father of a son who is under threat because we've learned in this series in the book of Exodus that God has a son. And, uh, and, and, and in the book of Exodus, he's not talking about Jesus when he refers to his son. He's talking about Israel. He calls them his firstborn son. And they're constantly under threat because, partly because they're stupid and sinful and partly because they're a small nation uh, who, are, who are living amongst greater nations. And that's exactly the context we find ourselves in Exodus, right? There's this small but growing nation living under the yoke of their oppressors, the great, greatest nation in the world at this time, uh, governed by the greatest leader in the world of the time, Pharaoh. And so God knows what it's like for his son to be under threat, and it's not just a physical threat to their well-being, to their civilization, it's a threat, even more importantly, to his promise. Because remember, we said right from the beginning, right from Genesis 3 through to Genesis 12, God has said, I've I've promised you I'm going to make a nation and out of this nation there's going to be one coming who is going to redeem you. He's going to save you. He's going to crush the head of the serpent who got us into this mess in the first place. And so his people are carrying this promise and if they get wiped out, his promise gets wiped out. So he knows what it's like to have this firstborn son and for that, for, for, for that son to be vulnerable to threats. And he gets so, he's, he, he believes so much in the promise of uh, redemption that's going to come through these people. And he loves his son so much and wants protect, to protect him so much that when, when they come under this threat, under the yoke of Pharaoh, he responds with action. So you remember in chapter 4 of Exodus, um, in, in verse 22 to 23, God says this to Pharaoh through Moses. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. God doesn't mince words and he doesn't make empty promises. This is not a threat. This is a fact. This will come to pass. If Pharaoh doesn't relent, if Pharaoh doesn't humble himself and release God's son, the people of Israel, from under his oppressive regime, then God will act and he will act decisively. And we saw this play out over the last couple of months. We've been looking at these plagues that God sends. And each plague is demonstrative of God's power over Pharaoh. He's just saying, listen, you think you're a God? You're not. There is one God, and that's me. And so he, he demonstrates this through plague after plague after plague. Through nine plagues, Pharaoh keeps thinking, oh, maybe I should do what he says. And then he hardens his heart and says, no, your firstborn son is mine. And so then God promises to send a tenth and most devastating plague. This is what we saw uh, where we left off in 
the book of Exodus, that God says, I'm going to come through Egypt by my destroying angel, my angel of death. He's going to move through Egypt and he is going to take the life of every firstborn son from the people and from the animals. Everyone is liable to my judgment. Everyone is liable to this plague and it will come and there will, he says, there will never have been such wailing and crying before and there never will be again. The extent of the destruction will be that great. Unless, unless you trust me, unless you put your faith in the sacrifice that I'm going to make for you. So he says to them, you can take a lamb. That lamb can be representative of you. He can be your substitute. You can kill the lamb. You can paint your doorposts red, just like our red door church. And that will be a sign to me that you trust me that your faith is in me, that you're relying on me to spare you from this plague and so you will be saved. And that's what we saw last week. The last verse that we read from last week, verse 30 of chapter 12. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. So the plate comes, and it has its intended effect. The Egyptians, in verse 33, it says, all of Egypt begs them to go. Please, just leave. You don't, you're not slaves anymore. You're free. Get out. They even sort of pay them to leave, right? According to God's command, the people of Israel ask for articles of gold and silver, and the Egyptians are like, yeah, just take it all. Just get, Go. Even Pharaoh says, get out. In verse 37 and 38, it says, The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. So this is the great exodus from Egypt. This is the, the paradigm of uh, of uh, redemption from slavery into freedom. For 3,000 years, this has echoed throughout history. This one historical event of the people of Israel being set free from under the bonds of their captors, this has kind of informed so much of our history ever since. It's echoed throughout the ages. So that when I lived in America for a couple of years in Pennsylvania, there was this Civil War Museum in Harrisburg, which I love to go to because I'm a history geek. Massive. Um, and uh, in this Civil War Museum, there's, it, it tells the story really from the perspective of the African slaves. If you don't know about the Civil War, it was basically uh, between the north part of America and the south, and it was over this issue of slavery. The north was saying, hey, you've got to let those slaves go free. And the south was saying, no, we paid a fair price for these Africans, and they're doing a pretty good job cutting up our tobacco, right? It's getting our cotton, right? So it got so heated that war broke out. And in this history museum, it's full of these allusions to the Exodus because many of the African slaves were Christians and this was their hope, right? You can see, if you're a slave in the South and you believe that the Bible is God's word, you're going to go to Exodus for a lot of your hope. 
And this was their great hope, that God would come just like he did 3,000 years before and he, was, he would set them free. Likewise, with uh, my wife Renee, we travelled to Southern Africa uh, a few years after I lived in the States. We went there and I remember going to District 6 in Cape Town, this notorious place where there was great segregation between blacks and whites. And again, in the museums there, there are these allusions to the Exodus. It was their great hope as well that they would be set free from an oppressive regime, just like God had done for Africans before their time in the United States and then for the Israelites in Egypt. So this exodus that we just read about, this exodus has become sort of the paradigm for like socio-political emancipation, socio-political liberation. This is a story that is told, which is, which is like a, 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 an example, a prototype of what it is to be rescued from under an oppressive political regime. And it is that. It is a great socio-political liberation. If you just listen to the way that, that God speaks about this Exodus in chapter 3, verse 10, uh, 7 to 10, right, this is what he says. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, Moses. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. It's a great story of socio-political liberation, but it is so much more than that. If you make it just about that, you miss the point of the story. It's about more than just that. This story fundamentally, primarily, is a story of salvation from sin and judgment. Not just a story about liberation from slavery. It's a story about salvation from sin and judgment. Let me read again verse 29 to 30, chapter 12. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Now that is true. Throughout the whole land of Egypt, there was not a house without someone dead. It was true for the Egyptians, and it was true for the Israelites as well. That night when God moved through the land in judgment, there was a corpse in every single house. It was either the corpse of a son or the corpse of a lamb. And the difference was the difference between rejecting God 
or having faith in his gracious provision. And this is why it's not just a story of socio-political emancipation, right? Because if that was the case, then it would just be innocent little Israel needs to be rescued by God from those big bad Egyptians. That's not how it's told, though. This story is told that in, the, in such a way that it's clear that everyone in Egypt was liable to God's judgment. Everyone deserved to die. This wasn't the, the good, Egyptian, the good um, Israelites versus the, the evil Egyptians. This was good and holy God and sinners. And this is the great problem that the whole story of the Bible tries to address. How can a holy God live among sinful people? the key question for you and I to answer in our own lives. So the provision was made for the people of Israel. Anyone who would have faith in God would take the blood of a lamb and paint it on their doorposts in order to avoid what they deserved. That's what they deserved, was judgment and death. And so because they understood that, they knew that that's what they deserved, they knew that they should have been destroyed in the plague along with the Egyptians, then the result of that recognition that God had saved them was this overwhelming sense of gratitude. Their response actually was just to fall down and worship God for his grace, even in the midst of this chaos and the wailing and the death, was to recognize that God had been gracious to them. But you know as well as I do, right? You can, you can be on your face in tears with gratitude to God for all that he's done for you. And then Monday rolls around and it's a whole different story. And so God knew that too. And what he did to counteract that tendency that we all have was to institute some perpetual traditions, some feasts that were to be celebrated every year to remind the people of these great acts of salvation. So I wrote it out for you just to be really clear. This is what's going on with, uh, just skip over a couple to the quote I've got there. We'll talk about these two festivals and what they mean in just a minute, but this is what's going on. God wanted these great acts, this great exodus act, this great redeeming salvation act to be remembered and rehearsed so that salvation would shape the identity of his people for generations to come. That's what he's doing here. And we're going to read about the Passover and about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but just so you know ahead of time, this is what's going on. God wants not just these people, but generations to come to know that he is a God who saves and that they are a people who have been saved, that that's their identity Former slaves, now sons. So his idea is to first come up with this festival of the Passover, and it's called that literally because God passed over their houses and spared them from the plague that was befalling them. But he explains a little bit about it in our text in in chapter 12, verse 42 to 49. It says, because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. For the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. 
No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house, remembering, reminding them that they were safe inside the house. Outside, there was only judgment and death, right? So eat it inside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. So this Passover meal, which is now going to be celebrated every year at the same time up until this day, if you're an Orthodox Jew, you'll, be, you'll celebrate the Passover once a year, is a reminder to them that they have been saved, liberated from the judgment of death. And he says there's another feast. This feast is going to be called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And again, if you're an Orthodox Jew, to this day you'll be practicing this once a year. And we're told about it in chapter 13, verse 3 to 10. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you. Nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance to the, at the appointed time, year after year. So again, what's going on here is that God wants there to be this perpetual remembering and rehearsal of his saving acts, and he wants those meals to shape his people. They say you are what you eat, right? That's what he's got in mind. You eat this festival remembering that I save and you are saved, and it, you become it. It shapes your identity. That's the whole idea behind these festivals. And so in the month of Aviv, which remember in chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, I think we learned this was going to be the first month for the Israelites, is to this day. The first month of Aviv, you get to the 10th of the month, you've got to pick your lamb to slaughter. The 14th of the month, you're going to eat that lamb, remembering that it's a substitutionary sacrifice for you. And on the 14th, when that festival ends, a new one begins, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, the people of Israel were in such a rush to get out of Egypt, they couldn't even wait for their yeast to rise in their dough. So they eat unleavened bread. That's just flat bread. It's um, pita bread, right? You're going to eat that from the 14th to the 21st. So those two festivals overlap in the 14th. 14th is Liberation Day, the 14th of Aviv. 
from this point 3,000 years ago and forever, the 14th of Aviv is Liberation Day. We remember that God saved us from the judgment of death and he liberated us from the yoke of the Egyptians. That's the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so they rehearse and re-rehearse this acknowledgement that God is a God who saved, that though we were once slaves, we are now freed men. We are sons and daughters of God. And, and the whole idea is that kids will be asking, what are we doing here? Like we've noticed, this is the biggest deal, right? With every year, this is, this is bigger than Christmas. That's a Jewish joke. All right, um, you'll get it on the way home. Um, and so what, what's going on here, Daddy? And so the idea that from generation to generation, kids from a young age would learn the importance of the Exodus story. So God says in, in, in chapter 12, verse 24 to 27, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you as he promised. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So it's to be this lasting ordinance, lasting memory, lasting rehearsal and re-rehearsal of God's great saving acts. And this, this meal, these, these festivals, these meals really did shape the identity of the people of Israel. It didn't make them perfect. They always forgot what God had done for them. When we get to the second part of Exodus, you're going to see that just always grumbling. Like they've forgotten what it feels like to have chains and people whipping them. They very quickly forget the great saving acts of God. But this, these festivals did help them. It did shape them and train them to be people who are identified as saved people. And so whenever they started oppressing their own people, whenever Israelites started enslaving other Israelites or just treating them badly, God would often send a prophet. And the prophet would often say, how, how can you do this to your brother and sister? Don't you remember the exodus? Don't you remember that you are a saved person, that you are a redeemed person? Don't you remember what it was like to be a slave? It became for them this, this, really this sense of shame that they'd fallen away from who God had called them to be. It was also really a prompt for their prayers. Whenever they found themselves again under a, another regime, whether it's the Syrians or the Babylonians, or what, maybe it was just out of a sense of feeling locked into their own sinfulness, their own brokenness, enslaved in that way. This was often the Passover and the Exodus became for them their language of their prayers. If you read through the Psalms, there are often allusions to the Exodus when they are crying out, God, please save us. We need you to, to lead us through the Red Sea again. We need you to, to, to set us free from our bondage. So it was a source of shame and it was a prompt for prayer and it was also the ground of their future hope. They had this future hope that God would do an even greater work sometime in the future. That God would do a new exodus. That there would be a new Passover that would complete what was unfinished in the first one. 
They had this hope that God, through remember, through the seed, through his appointed servant, that God was going to once and for all lead them out of slavery. And so you read this, in, especially in the prophets. Uh, the prophet Isaiah talks about it in, in chapter 43. He says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in their ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. Then he rehearses the Exodus. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together. We'll get here this uh, next week. And they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past, on the first exodus. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. And then Jesus turns up and fulfills that hope. Jesus turns up and says, I'm the water of life. I am that stream in the desert. I am the answer to all of your inner turmoil, all of your inner dissatisfaction, your desire for a new exodus, a new Passover, a new creation. I'm the fulfillment of all of that. Jesus is the new Passover lamb. That first one was just a shadow. Jesus is the reality. So Peter says it exactly like this, right? In 1 Peter 1, verse 19, 18 to 19, he says, You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold or church attendance or taking communion or doing good works or none of those things redeemed you from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He's got in squarely in mind there the Passover. That in the first Passover, faithful Jews had to take an unblemished lamb and slaughter it. It's death in their place for their sin. But Peter says, listen, a new thing has happened. A new exodus has come. The new Passover lamb is not a little bleeding woolly thing. It is the son of God. He has been slaughtered for you. He's the lamb without blemish or wrinkle or spot. He's the fulfillment of everything the first exodus couldn't be. He's our Passover lamb. And so at this church, at Red Door Church, every week we practice and participate in and rehearse the Passover. And it's not the Passover that we read about in this account. It's not the Passover that Orthodox Jews rehearse every year. It's the Passover. It's the fulfillment of that shadow. It's the Lord's Supper. 
And so the Lord's Supper comes as the great fulfillment of that first supper 3,000 years before. The Lord's Supper is our fulfilled Passover where we remember the once-for-all slaughtering of the Lamb of God in our place and for our sin. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. And it's designed in exactly the same way as those first meals and festivals were designed. It's designed to shape us. This meal, right? This meal that you've been abusing week to week and just going, yeah, well, uh, is it bread or am I gluten-free? I think I'll be gluten-free this week, right? That thing that you just do unthinkingly, it's meant to do something. It's meant to achieve something. It's meant to be a means of grace that shapes you so that without it, you go around freaking out because the world is telling you to be this and this and this and this shape and this color and have these things. And all those things cause you stress and anxiety and worry and, and cause you to look into the mirror and see a, 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 an ugly reflection, nothing like what the world is telling you to be. This meal is designed to reshape you. We do it every week, praying that God buy it would shape us according to the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is, I used to be a slave to all of that stuff. I used to be a slave to my sin. But I am no longer a slave. Christ, the Passover lamb, has been slaughtered in my place. God has led me out of that land in which I was a slave and led me into a new land flowing not with milk and honey but with living water that I used to be a slave to these things I used to be a slave to what the world told me that I had to be I used to be a slave to my own desires and my own appetites but now I've been set free I used to be a slave and now I'm a son I used to be under the yoke of a slave master. It's a really weird slave master. It's part Satan, part me, part the world, all in this three-headed monster slave master that used to tell me what to do day and night, but I've been set free from that slave master. I'm now a son of a loving father. And he says... Turn your ears off to the noise. That stuff that tells you you've got to be this way, you've got to fit this mold, you've got to do, 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 do until you're dead. It says, turn your ear off to that. I have a better way. It is the way of freedom and liberation. You're now a son, you're now a daughter. You live in my household. This meal is meant to tell us that. And I love it because God could have said, yeah, just tell them that every week. But he didn't say that. He said, no, participate. Do it. Eat. Drink. And so it's not just a hearing and a believing. It's a participating. It's a rehearsing. When you eat the bread or the gluten-free thing, right, or the wine or the juice, when you do that, it's meant to be a reminder to you. It's not, no, no. Everyone look right at me, right? It's not just a reminder. It's a participation. 
It's you saying, I am no longer a slave. Jesus' body that was broken, his blood that was shed, means that I am now free. So in a few minutes, when we share this meal together, pray, pray. I'm praying for you. Pray for yourself. Pray that God, through this meal, would be reshaping your identity, setting you free. Because here's the truth. We are God's children now, if you're a believer in Jesus. But so often we go back to the slave master. This weird thing about slavery, really through the ages, there was a phenomenon that we saw in the Civil War. There were slaves who were set free because the North won the war, just in case catch up to speed. The North won, set the slaves free, slaves free, but some of the slaves went back. They went, they went back. They, didn't, they, they were scared of what life out there would be like. They went back to their masters who had oppressed them and, and treated them like dogs. And we can do the same thing. We can get so comfortable in our slavery that we actually start to enjoy it. And even when we've been set free from it, we can find ourselves going back to it. So this meal is meant to remind us, don't go back. Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, the blood of the lamb. Therefore, don't go back. There's a little bit in the chapter that we just read, which I don't have time to go into, but it was about setting apart the children of Israel, setting them apart as God's children. That because he had purchased them with blood, they now belong to him. And the same is true of us. We have been purchased with the blood of Jesus. Therefore, we belong to him. So he calls us to live in such a way that honors him. We're no longer slaves, but we do belong to a loving heavenly father. So listen, just as Israel were slaves to Egypt... And these meals of Passover and unleavened bread were meant to shape their identity as children of a loving father. So we, all of us here, were once slaves to sin. And this meal is designed to reshape us and form us in our identity as children of a loving father. Let me pray for us. Father, we need your help. We need your help because we are slaves who have been set free and some of us don't know it yet. Or some of us haven't embraced it yet. Or some of us are still walking in slavery when you're wanting us to celebrate our freedom. Take our minds and our hearts and tune them into your voice. Help us to shut out that incessant voice of the world that screams at us to be this or that, that three-headed monster of Satan and ourselves and the world around us, Lord, please help us to turn to you. You're our Father. You want us to walk in victory, in liberation, in hope. Lord, we pray that you would be shaping us every day, and particularly as we receive this meal together, that you'd be shaping us as former slaves, now sons and daughters of a loving Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.